0: Welcome once again to the Suburban Vicar podcast. I'm your host, Steve Silverthorne. The Suburban Vicar is a podcast about how faith and community can intersect to help neighborhoods flourish and to nurture the human spirit. Now, I've had many good teachers over the years. They were all different, but they all had something in common. They were people. Now that seems obvious enough, but I recently read a book which made me question whether people were the only teachers I should be listening to. The book is How to Make a Plant Love You, Cultivating Green Space in Your Home and Heart. And it's a fascinating reflection on the way we relate to plants. The author is Summer Rain Oaks, and she argues that our lives are diminished when we don't pay attention to the plants which surround us. That's particularly true in the suburbs, where so many yards look alike and where we zip past vegetation as we commute to work. This brings a disconnect from nature, which leaves us feeling rootless and isolated from the land we live on. Summer argues that through devoting a little time and attention to the plants in our lives, we can start to feel more grounded and more connected to the ecosystem in which we live. On today's podcast, I talk to Summer Rain about her book, about what we can learn from plants, and how we can provide them with the conditions which help us receive their blessings. I hope you enjoy. Summer Rain, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So just to get started, your book is called How to Make a Plant Love You. Why did you choose that title instead of calling it something like gardening tips or how to look after plants?
1: Well, I think, um, I think the, the title and the subtitle both, um, How to Make a Plant Love You, Cultivate Green Space in Your Home and Heart. It's meant to have a lot of metaphor and meaning in that title. And I think initially people thought that it was going to be a garden tips book. And in, as a matter of fact, you could actually find this book in the gardening section of bookstores, but I think it's actually not really a book on gardening, but a book on relationships. And that is the relationship to ourself, the rest of the world that we have around us, um, our immediate community, our greater world, but through the lens of plant care. So it's actually not written as a very tactical guide, but more as a relationship guide. And um, when you like look into that title of how to make a plant love you, um, it really is asking what you could do for the plant and not necessarily what the plant could do for you off offhand. And that subtitle of cultivate green space in your home and heart, there's a lot of double entendres there. So yes, with the word cultivate, because you could take that many different ways. And yes, with home, because it doesn't necessarily mean our home behind our four walls, but also our greater home, but really the word space. And space is not just meant to be taken as, uh, again, our literal space, but also our spiritual space and our mental space for that which is important in life. And I use this analogy a lot, but when we, if we have like a meditation or if we have a yoga practice, we talk about like quote unquote creating space quite a bit, and uh, and that's how I wanted to bring in layers of meaning into this book. So again, it's like one of those things. It's don't take a book by its cover at face value. I think that there's there's a lot more to be had in those in the pages.
0: Yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons I found the book fascinating. I've looked at many books on gardening, and honestly, they they make me fall asleep sometimes. It's just too many facts and figures and math, I guess. Whereas this, it really presented as a kind of philosophy of life and not simply how to do certain things by technique. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how your book starts, because it starts talking about relationship. Your opening sentence is, this book is intended as a relationship guide of sorts. And then you talk about human-plant dialogue. Could you give us a picture of what that looks like?
1: Yeah, well, um, on the relationship side of things, I mean, I think with with anything in life, you start to deepen your involvement and your engagement and find your roots, literally and figuratively speaking, when you actually start to become curious about another being. And it doesn't necessarily always mean a plant. It could also mean a a person. It could mean an animal. It could mean um, a thing that you have a relationship with. And, um, and I think that's kind of important, you know, so one of there's the book is um, only rarely illustrated, it has about nine illustrations, but in each of the chapters, there's a chapter heading illustration, and they're, they're cute and whimsical, but it kind of takes people through these stages of the relationship, you know, there's this metaphorical, like leaving Eden behind, you know, going from, you know, the, the um, Country to the city and you know leaving our kind of roots and our relationships with plants and the earth behind and then you know pretty soon you get to a place where there's a, a young woman whining and dining a, a, a plant across the table and there's a plant watering can on one side and she has a glass of wine um, and There's hearts floating in the air, but it's it's kind of like that It's kind of like developing this relationship and looking at your the plants around you more than just like a thing or just as decor. um, And realizing that, uh, you know, they're, they're there to not only care for you, but to be taken care of. Uh, So I think that that's how I view kind of the relationship side. And that is directly with plants. But, you know, I think, um, Wade Davis's forward in, in the beginning, or Simon Sinek's note in the front of the book, like really sets the stage to look at this also more than just a relationship guide with plants but also with um, people around us and how we could actually take some of these greater philosophies as you had mentioned with that word and apply them to all aspects of our life in so many different ways
0: so what do you think that plants can teach us about human relationships then
1: well i you know i just gave this uh, talk at um, creative mornings in new york city and the topic was on roots and it was such a fascinating topic to to mull over because again there's like all that it's layered with meaning it's just dripping with meaning and i really love some of the the correlations that i actually pulled from from that talk from just actually thinking about one simple word and i have this theme in the book as well like one of the core themes is that plants really create the environment that they want to live in. And if you look at kind of the evolutionary means of plants, you know, you could trace them back to somewhere between 400 and 450 million years. So they've been here on the planet, pumping out oxygen, you know, allowing us to breathe. And so there's a lesson that we can learn, you know, through that time. And I think what was interesting is that If you really look back like going back to that statement of like plants create the environment that they live in like it's not as if you know they they populate every aspect of the earth i mean they have crawled their way to the tops of trees to escape competition below they are in the estuaries and marshy and salt flats where like there's lack of oxygen and nutrients they're climbing on rock faces you know, hanging like these daredevils off of cracks and crevices, and they have populated these places, and they actually do this through relationships, and they do this through relationships not only to themselves and others of the same kind, but also others of not of its kind, and I'm talking about like fungi and protozoa and archaea and um, other types of um, bacteria, nematodes, soil, earth, air, water... And in a way, like a lot of these places started off as a brown crust, but through time and through these relationship buildings of those years, the plants started to populate the land and thrive and then create the ecosystem that they want to live in. So a great example of that, and I use this in the book, is we, you know, when we learn about water cycle and all those, like you say, like some of the things that like you glaze over and just like fall asleep. But we don't talk about water cycle in relation to our lives. And I love using this analogy of the Amazon rainforest because it's often described as the lungs of the earth. And if you look at cloud cover data of like the earth over time, you will see these clouds kind of breathing in and out over these green spaces like the Amazon. And I look at that and I'm like, how can you look at that and not think that that is like in a way the earth like? breathing in and out just breathing and respiring and those trees are evapotranspiring which means the water is going up through the roots through the leaves and into the air and evaporating and forming this cloud cover and then the water falls back down onto the next bit of forest and that evapotranspires and then goes onto the next one and that's the water cycle and as soon as you remove a chunk of that forest and you have this hole the water cycle is broken because the water will come up, it falls onto dry, desolate land, and then there's nothing to evapotranspire up. And, that, and, you know, when you look at, like, these droughts happening as far away as Australia and California, and you and you understand then when you kind of, like, take that 30,000-foot approach of what's actually happening, the water cycle's broken. And I think that if we were kind of in more engaged and more curious about these things, we would have had a little bit more curiosity in our younger years of like relational science in our place on this earth. Um, so, you know, and, and we we only see what we see with our eyes, you know, sometimes. And, um, and, you know, a lot of what happens underneath the soil is so important. It was what, you know, plants have used in order to be able to form these relationships, um, you know, in order to be able to populate and give us the ecosystems that we you know, we benefit from. Um, And like I, I, we read all the time, like when you're, when somebody removes a forest in the rainforest and they put, you know, cattle there or whatever in three or four short years, the forest is desolate because there's no more life. And it's because the complexity of the life underneath our feet, like in our soils, is so diverse and so complex and such a community that when you actually remove that community, you remove the lifeblood of the soil. And I feel like you could use the same metaphor to everything that's happening now. Um, when you like remove people from their their countries and you make them into refugees, when you, you know, create pockets of bad energy in your own life or in your own workplace, uh, when you don't, uh, you know, revere the people that are in your life and respect them, you know, I think that it it creates these pockets of bad energy. And, And I think that like life is really based on relationships and not to others of your kind, but also others not of your kind and to the earth and to the air and everything like that. So if I could draw on that big metaphor using the roots, you know, metaphor, that is just like one of the many things that we could actually, you know, take from plants.
0: Just picking up on roots, One of the things that inspired me to name my podcast The Suburban Vicar is because I am a child of the suburbs, and I live in the suburbs and serve there, and of course I'm also a vicar, which means I'm a minister at a church, but one of the things that I notice about living in the suburbs is is that when you move from one suburb to another, there often doesn't seem to be an awful lot of difference between them, like not much that's really distinct architecture or community-wise, so people don't feel there's much unique about their community. They don't feel rooted and, and often don't seem to have a sense of place. Um, with other people or with their natural environment. So, how can plants give us that sense of place and help us to feel more rooted in a suburban context?
1: Well, yes, yeah, suburban and also urban context. I mean, it's, you know, and it's probably even more so here. You know, I have a community garden and we cannot plant directly into the earth. Which you know, is like so it feels so sacrilegious in a way, like I um like it's illegal now to be able to feed birds in the city, and I still have a bird feeder, mind you. So it's kind of like I feel like a fugitive sometimes, like because you're looking for this connection, you're looking for this connection with animals and plants and everything like that. And people are telling you, no, you can't do it. And it's largely because, and I understand why, like in an urban context, um if you plant directly into the earth, the earth has been really, you know, mired with like lead and heavy metals and things like that so it's for people's safety but it's sad that we've gotten to that place where our earth is so polluted Um, that being said I even I did take soil samples of the places where I was planting where I wanted to plant in the earth and our soils were actually fine and still yet they didn't want me to plant in the earth Um, and and so I think that you know even when you want to try to establish relationships sometimes the um laws are as such that it doesn't allow you to deepen your relationship with them, and I think that uh, people are going to start looking at this kind of more and more um in the suburban areas i mean sometimes we look at things and there there might not be um this type of um inspiration it, it may not be inspirational it may everybody might have their uh hedgerows and their lawn, and that's it. So I think it's, um, you know, really amazing what you could do on just a small plot of land. And there are people in suburban environments who have created like these little plots of like permaculture plots, where they're really mimicking kind of uh, farming, but in an earth like setting, like how the earth would align itself. So it looks a little messy, you know, to some to the to the naked eye, but it's a way to kind of reconfigure your landscape to be more a part of the environment. And that really resonates with me. Um, especially cause I've been spending a lot more time upstate. And one of the things that I uh, saw, and this is obviously like not so trendy yet, but I, I hope it will be, um, one woman was letting her, had a very small piece, a large piece of land, but small bit of lawn and started to grow the lawn into meadow. And I know some people might not want to do that because they say, oh, you know, there's ticks and things like that. but. Uh, It was so inspirational because you started to see these meadow birds, which you typically wouldn't see Baltimore Orioles, meadowlarks, everything along those lines that were just little little wrens that literally had their, uh, like probably the size of two quarters, just a little babies, like hanging out on two large sedges, just kind of. like a little nest just between two sedges and I was like oh my god this is so darling and you know in in recent times I think that nature just put out an article about like 29 percent of our our bird species have like dropped especially the ones in the meadows because people create lawns and they might have their little forests, but they won't have that in between transition zone so a lot of these birds don't have places to come back to and I think that what I felt there Was so miraculous because it's like anybody could do that with their pieces of land. Um, You know, planting more native species, uh, planting something, you know, knowing that even composting in your backyard, you could establish and make soil more quickly than you're losing soil. And to know that humans have that impact and have that power to actually make the world better, to make their land better, and make soil quicker than Earth. And just the you know earth like uh, degrading some soil through mycelium and you know weathering of stone and everything like that that you could actually create soil faster um, is is miraculous and to start to know that and to start to feel empowered by that and um, and reestablish that connection I mean you don't have to be a farmer to establish that connection to nature and you don't have to have hundred acres of land to do that, you could start with one acre. You could do a lot on one acre. And I think that there's a lot of people out there who have shown that they're just doing things in container gardening and in their backyards. And, you know, and I think that's why people had been inspired by my home in Brooklyn, you know, to live with eleven hundred plants and doors and to try to extend that out into the community by creating plant swaps and more experiences for people to come together and have that sense of community, I think is really important.
0: I notice even just uh, when I walk down the block with my dog, some people go beyond the front lawn and actually seem to really create this this real space out front, something beautiful. Not just that they've grabbed something out of a garden center, but actually seem to to project the sense that they love the land. I want to make something beautiful so they can spend time out there. It's actually a great conversation starter. People stop when they're walking their dog to talk to the person about the rhododendron or whatever. It's actually a great human connection.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I have a friend who like always films like plant snoopers out his window because he has a really fabulous garden and then people will stop and like look at his plants and he's like filming. He's like plant snoopers.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's really great. And I know it's maybe it's a little awkward because I live in a row of townhouses so I can look into everybody's backyard from my bedroom window. Yeah. It's actually kind of nice because some people have created a kind of oasis. Like it's not all just deck and barbecues and stuff. It actually seems like people are enjoying something that's growing and enjoying being around those living things. So I was hoping we'd circle back to talking about a relationship with plants and appreciating what they are and not just what they do for us. Because I think that's actually a very attractive philosophy for a lot of people. But I also think that for a lot of people, they, they feel their lives are already stretched thin and don't have much time. And oftentimes, like you mentioned in your book, spikes in anxiety and loneliness are occurring across our culture, so it can make it hard for somebody to embark on something new. What suggestions can you make for people who want to take the first steps in forming a new relationship with plants, of slowing down and appreciating what they are and allowing plants to benefit? them?
1: Yeah, well, I I share um, some observation exercises and some exercises at the end of every chapter, and one of the ones that I really like to do and that I like to practice is just by, you don't even have to have a plant in your house, but if you walk your on your way to work, or if you're in, um, you know, the garden center, or if you are, you know, in your community garden, or in your backyard, or if you're just like noticing something that's popping up between the, the sidewalk, and just noticing a plant, um, just starting just by that, just like acknowledging it, noticing it, and, um, and observing it. So, you know, I w- walk every Saturday to my um farmers market to drop off my compost. And I and it, we've been having an unseasonably warm spring and some of the things that I'm noticing is this one tree, one cherry tree always blossoms and it's blossoming earlier and earlier and it it has still has its blossoms on it. It's February and it still has its blossoms on it. But it blossoms before and continuously than any other tree. Actually, that's in the row and I I find this to be very interesting and it's done it for three years straight And so just by actually being in this place of observation and wondering why that might be Why is that particular tree blossoming and not the others? um, You don't necessarily need a hypothesis and to do a scientific experiment on it or anything along those lines but you're actually slowing yourself down you're engaging with this other being and even if you're not talking to it, right, but you are just becoming this much more inquisitive, curious individual. You're developing this kind of like spiritual kind of like relationship with it to a certain degree, and, um, and you're starting to wonder about it, and I think that is an important thing. You know, even if you're developing a relationship with a person, um, you are curious. You're going to be asking questions, um, you know, you might be engaging them with them a little bit more that there's, there's things like that that I think are really important. So that's a really simple one. Um, and, and hopefully like if you become more involved and more engaged in this, then you will, uh, maybe start to bring uh plants into your life a little bit more or start to have a point of view when it comes to plants, whether it's like indoors or out in your yard. But. You know, I I do realize this might be like off the wall for some folks, you know, because there is a culture right now where um, plants are really just being looked at as decor, whether it's for your yard or whether it's indoors. But I realize by putting out this information in, in the fashion like I've done with how to make a plant love you, or even on my YouTube channel, that it's it's helping move the conversation along. It's helping shift the mind. Even if it's a little bit like before it's time, if you will, like I feel like this this book and these topics will become like totally accepted like in one, two, three years down the road, because you know it's it's inevitable, like people are not going to be satisfied with the superficial involvement and engagement with the world. It's just not that giving you know back to us um so you know i, I you i I feel like I'm I and others are just like more forced to in a good way, look and say, Well, how do we deepen people's involvement? How do we deepen people's engagement? How do we give them the tools and the techniques and the strategies to do that? And they could be very simple. They could be soft skills like the simple fact of observation.
0: I appreciate that you also talked not just about living plants but also about the plants' afterlife. And where we're in the process of turning a living tree into a a non-tree. Yeah. could you talk a little bit about what that means when you talk about the afterlife of a plant and why we should care what happens to plants after they die?
1: I think this is one of the more powerful chapters of the book where, um, again, it just really dips into the philosophical ends of things of like, you know, who is it? Who says a tree stops being a tree? you know because if we insert the saw and the tree becomes lumber like it's in our language you know becomes lumber it becomes this thing it becomes this dead thing but you know trees will often resprout again if i look at like my grandmother's frustration with her willow tree in the back it just will you know take a, one of its little sticks if it's left behind and just grow back and my it always falls like on my grandmother's house and stuff like that this willow tree is so persistent but you know who who is it like who are we to say that it stops you know being a tree um there's so much uh life and so much living and and if you look at you know a, a tree's lifespan if we were not to to remove it um you know we're talking about hundreds to thousands of years um not just a tree but like any any plant there's lots of plants that will continue forward and continue on even if it's the clonals of themselves and and there's something to be really said about that. And then when we actually do turn a tree, harvest a tree, and or any other plant for that matter, I mean, I'm drinking tea right now. I have it on this board that, you know, has been upcycled that I took from, you know, an event. I mean, I'm, I'm here with like a cotton pillow. Uh, you know, all of these things have been taken from the earth and turned into something that I am using. And and I think that as we start to look at the world around us, we begin to realize like how much of an impact like this has on our own lives, whether we know it or not. Um, And it might make us cherish the things that we have a little bit more. It might get us inspired to actually have something that is a less of a throwaway society. Um, And it's kind of funny because my colleague who i mentioned in the book alan um, who's out in mozambique he showed me this little comic strip that he had pulled out and it said artifacts from ancient times and they had like you know beautiful spearheads and masks and things like this and it said artifacts from current times and you had just like landfill like toilet seats and you know toothpicks and straws and things that are just so disposable and uh and i think that resonates you know that really resonates with me it's kind of like asking well what are we leaving behind you know what is our legacy not only as individuals but as like a human society and um and i think that that is uh it's funny and sad at the same time, you know, to be able to laugh about it and just like recognize it and just be like, Ooh, yeah, that hurts. So yeah, it it is. But I, you know, and I think like when I look at things like with plants and we, we look at like, you know, the oxygen that's, you know, being, you know, like I said, the Amazon is often called lungs of the earth. And a lot of that oxygen also comes from cyanobacteria, these, you know, uh, um, oxygen producing bluish green bacteria in, in our oceans. But really the carbon really gets locked up in plants and in trees because cyanobacteria, their bodies are very fragile and they will turn into CO2 into the atmosphere very quickly. They will release CO2 back into the atmosphere very quickly. But in a plant, um, they it's stuck in their form. It's stu- The carbon is stuck into the peat bogs and deep in the forest floor and when you do eventually turn that uh that that piece of wood into a furniture it is still trapped in that 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 tree until you burn it right so it is it is a very um important body uh for this planet and this you know this whole discussion around climate change and all this other kind of stuff but um it it is very important to be able to keep that in the tree, and ideally in our ecosystem. But if we are to to craft something from, you know, the, the earth, then why not craft something that is um, important and that will remain and retain its value over over time? Uh, it's a good way to think about things.
0: Yeah, when I, I read that section of your book, it made me think of an old churchy term, providence. It's the idea that you're living your life dependent on the generosity of God. In other words, you're not just living by the power of your own will, but you're also you're also living in a relationship of interdependence with the rest of creation. You know, we get into real trouble when we live completely independently from other people, just excluded. We sometimes also forget that we're also in a relationship of interdependence with the earth and all she produces. After reading your book, I, I get more of a sense of this when I sit on furniture, which bears the marks of a living thing, and when I can see the grain of the wood as opposed to picking something up at Ikea. Where whatever woods in it's been pulped and you got no idea where it came from or or what kind of life it lived. Yeah, crafted things just give a sense that you're the beneficiary of something good and are part of something bigger than yourself. I think a lot of people lack the sense today.
1: Yeah, and I think that the interdependence um, is actually a relief. And I don't know if um, other people view it this way, but sometimes I find by just shifting your way of thinking just a little bit more, it, it's like revelatory and to your point of that interdependence, I, I revel that because if we get so stuck in our own heads, and of course, like, I, we always feel like the center of our universe is our ourselves, and that's it. And that's when, you know, this kind of like, toxicity develops, I think, in our in our bodies, like where we have more jealousy, we have more anxiety, we have more whatever. But if we start to, um you know, kind of release that and understand that we are just individuals in this like larger interdependent world. And we start to care about certain people in our lives. You know, I, you know, it's hard to, you know, have that same care for everybody. But if you have like close, you know, people in your lives that you, you know, begin to put emphasis on, it really takes that, um, that, uh, you know, selfishness away. And and I I look at those things, you know, I look at those things in my own relationships and I look at the folks that I have like deep relationships with. And I actually thought about this today because I took the time, I I, um, actually volunteer at the Senior Citizen Service Center three times a day, seven days a week when I'm when I'm here at um, in New York. And every morning I wake up to take care of the, the chickens at the Senior Center. And I have really connected with this older Polish man who's on my street. I can't even remember his name, but we we always have conversations, and he loves birds. And he used to watch me as I I held like my my chicken Kippy, um, who who passed uh, recently. But she used to ride on my shoulder, and he loved it. He used to love watching my little chicken just ride on my shoulder. And today I I stopped and I said, Hey, I don't. I noticed you're not feeding your pigeons, and he goes, Oh, people yell at me for feeding the pigeons, and they get really angry. And I was showing him the bird feeder that I hung outside my window. And, and I was like, geez, you know what? I see him every day. We smile, we talk. Um, Sometimes we talk longer than others. And it's these folks in my life that really pull me into the community and then make that richness in my life, as opposed to just like walking and like not having any interactions whatsoever. And, and I, and I value that. So, you know, I don't have as close a relationship with him as maybe some of my best friends. But it's a relationship that really matters and that pulls you deeper into that community and that makes your life livable in a way. And I, and I love that. It takes me out of like my own selfishness. And when, when you could do that, you begin to realize that like a lot of that kind of toxicity that I was talking about really just drifts away.
0: So one of the things that I was hoping we could do is provide a bit of how-to information on, on how to start making a plant love us. So what should we be considering when we go to buy a plant for our home so that we we don't treat it like a prisoner of war, but instead a, a thriving part of a living relationship?
1: Yeah, well, I think that's a great question. I mean, th- from the tactical side of things, you know, we really get whisked in. I, I I live by a lot of plant shops and people just like are drawn into the plants because there's life spewing there. And we often are just like picking out a plant that we like from a visual standpoint, which is cool. You know, that's what plants, that's how we've like selected plants over the years is like oh that looks good or this is redder or this is um you know more bigger foliage or whatever the case might be but i think i encourage people to kind of step back and understand what conditions that you have in your home and you know basic plant 101 plants eat light they photosynthesize they they take the sun's energy and they they break it down into component parts and and that's important for a plant um So understanding a little bit more of the lighting conditions in our home really helps. So you know, I have southwest windows, I have northeast windows, I have two very different plants, uh, types of plants in those windows because of the intensity, the quality, the quantity of light that I get in one and not the other. So that should start to inform you a little bit more of like what plants you need. And oftentimes, if you talk to an um, a, a plant employee, if he or she is knowledgeable, they could actually help you determine a little bit more of like what that, what plant should be in those lighting conditions. Um, I think also going into what kind of person you are and in interactions with that plant, you know, whether you will be caring for it regularly, whether you have, you travel a lot, whether you have pets, you know, these are the things that will start to help filter down what type of plant is probably going to be best for you to start. Uh, and then also knowing eventually where you will put that, because if you do have pets and you think your kitty is going to eat your plant, well then maybe, you know, a hanging plant so that it's hanging from the ceiling is going to be better. Um, provided that you give you the light and it, it fills, fulfills the criteria of like who you are as a plant parent, you know? And, um, or if you want something that fits into a corner and is like a little bit more upright, well then, you know, you might need to go with something like a snake plant. Um, so, You know, these are things that I think help us determine maybe the right one for us to start, but it shouldn't be a deterrent for people who want to try new things. And I think that one of the things with bringing plants indoors in our own life is that like we have our different experiences with it. And, you know, I I have assembled grow lights in my interior space in order to be able to have better and healthier plants In that space um which would relatively be a dark space with no light for my plants so i think that those are all you know very important considerations and know that people will start to want a plant that might not be in a perfect condition for their home and then they start to make that condition in their home for that plant and again i think that's part of like developing a relationship with plants
0: last question you talked a bit about finding knowledgeable people when preparing to bring a plant home do you have any tips on finding a good garden center Like the kind of place where people sell you healthy plants and have good advice, because some are probably just selling bulk plants for decor and without a lot of real knowledge of their products. But then there's others, of course, that have a lot more dedication and knowledge.
1: Well, you know, it's actually really challenging because it's also built on the garden center's HR policy and who they bring um, into the fold. Um, But I've found through my own personal experience that family owned and operated garden centers are some of the better places to go because people have been working there for ages and um, usually have somebody who's like a pretty, pretty knowledgeable on the staff. Um, The other, like I've actually gone to some plant shops and people are not knowledgeable. Like I I will go in there and I'll say, Oh, do you have this such and such plant? Um, And then they just give me this glazed over look. Uh, So You know you get a general sense but i think if somebody is maybe not knowledgeable at all that could be really tough Um, but there's other places that you could go as well especially if you're buying outdoor plants like you could go to your extension office there you you know every state has an extension Um, i'm sure there's somewhat equivalent to extension offices also within canada because you have like universities that actually study um, and you know have this information out to uh, growing in your climates and things like that. Um, I think for indoor plants, like you're you're really, you know, kind of stuck with your garden centers. Um, and or like if you go to big box stores, I think that's probably like the, the worst. You know, there's some, you know, if you go to like, especially in the States, if you go to big box stores a little bit more in kind of country settings, sometimes you'll get like good garden center people, but most of the time they're there to like push fertilizers and all this other kind of their high Margin businesses within the gardens and you'll often have like these really sad-looking plants and you'll get like very a small subset of those sad-looking plants because um, They they're the plants that only do well in like real real neglect uh, so I, I I think that um, Looking at family owned and operated garden centers um, Going, you know trying to find things online, you know, that's one of the things that I try to do with like plant one on me on YouTube Or, um, you know, I do this through the houseplant masterclass that I do is like really solid science based plus experiential based plus like personal experiential based plus with all the botanists and horticulturists and everything that I've met over the years. Just kind of extrapolating all that information and putting it in in a solid resource from soup to nuts um, in one place because it's when we're trying to search for the stuff, it's really scattershot. Um, on the internet so and you could see some really varying you know bits of information so you know with that I really try to link it to um, Reports and peer-reviewed science journals and things like that so that people could see that oh this stuff has been tested There was a control group here. There wasn't one here and you know These are some of the things that we found from doing those types of uh, uh, Methods and you just kind of put it together in a little bit more of an understandable story or human story, which I think is what makes us like in a place where we don't glaze over all the time.
0: <laughs> sure, that's, that's really helpful. Thank you very much, Summer Rain, for joining us. It was really a great book, and I really enjoyed speaking with you. So thanks again for being with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your good questions.
0: That was Summer Rain Oaks. Her book is How to Make a Plant Love You, Cultivating Green Space in Your Home and Heart, and can be found on Amazon or wherever fine books are found. If you check the show notes, you'll find a link to her website, summerrain.net. There, you'll learn not only that she graduated from Cornell University Cum Laude with degrees in environmental science and entomology, but that she is also a model, entrepreneur, and sustainability consultant in the fashion, beauty, and food industries. please check it out. that's not enough, she has a great YouTube channel on plants and their care. Just look for her name or click the link in the show notes. I also added a link to my favorite garden center here in Ottawa, the Green Thumb Garden Center. It's well worth a visit. As always, you can reach me on Twitter at shsilverthorn or through the contact section of my church website, goodshepherdbarhaven.ca. If you're feeling generous, you can even make a donation to the church I serve. Just visit the church website and navigate to the donation section. Donations are tax-deductible, and they go to support the good work we do here in Barhaven. If you like this episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe to the podcast by typing in The Suburban Vicar on Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts and hitting the subscribe button. Tell your friends, leave a good review, and stay tuned for more next month. Until next time, stay rooted my friends.